0: apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast
1: that's right
0: quest
1: right, right, right. love supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. this classic episode was produced by the team at pandora
0: what up y'all this is laia and this week's quest love supreme classic is all about a true legend her name was ali willis We lost her a couple of years ago, but before that, she sat down with Quest and Team Supreme, September 19th, 2018, as she was also being honored as Songwriter of the Year. Uh, Yeah. Who is this person who has the color purple, friends, and earth, wind, and fire in common? It's Allie Willis, and we break it all down in this episode. So listen, learn, and um, celebrate the life of a really cool lady.
1: Suprema, sup, sup, Suprema su- su- roll call. Suprema, sup, sup, Suprema roll call.
2: Suprema, sup, sup, Suprema roll call. Suprema, roll su- call. Su- I'm
1: slightly out of it. Yeah. yeah. I'm a little sick. Yeah. yeah. My favorite jam of all time. Yeah. It's September by Taylor Swift. Suprema, sup, sup, Suprema roll call. Suprema. Su, su, roll call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. Always wanted to ask. Yeah. How high were you? Yeah. When you wrote Neutron Dance.
2: High. Suprema, su, su, Suprema, Roll Call. Suprema, S, su, su, Suprema Roll Call. It's La like Yeah.
0: Allie's here. Get up. Yeah. And I'm so hyped. Yeah. We about to steer it up. Roll
1: Call, oh, hey. Suprema, Suprema, su- su- Suprema Roll Call, Suprema, Suprema, su- su- Suprema Roll Call.
3: I am Allie, yeah. from the Valley, LA, yeah. though I used to live in New York.
1: Roll Call, <laughs> Suprema, right of- I'll take that. Oh, Super- shit, I roll I Suprema, 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 I thought it was Detroit. Suprema, Sur- yes. su- su- yeah. Suprema, Suprema yeah, Roll Call. Suprema. <laughs> Suprema, 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 ah! Wow. Okay. It, we were a little scared when we started the theme because it was only, yeah, normally I mean. it's like 19 billion of us. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, a very anemic uh, Quest Love Supreme. <laughs> I'm your host, Quest Love. Uh, the show must always go on. Uh, we're here today with uh, It's and Sugar Steve. Uh, hello. hello, people. Uh, I will say that. If you know me, or if you know us well at the uh, at Questlove Supreme, we've been here for a year and some change. Uh, then you know that we're all about looking under the hood to see what's under the surface, and today is no different. Uh, quick, quick backdrop story. So back in March, when uh, Taylor Swift pulled a, uh, a a master three Michelin star troll move
0: pissing all the aunties off mm-mm, mm-mm.
1: <laughs> with her with her with her with her cover of the uh the cousin pete family reunion uh barbecue approved rendition of september uh most of us called the uh the the raisin potato salad remix um you know uh, as expected uh black twitter was up in arms because that's what taylor swift does mm-hmm. well um but little did we know that we had a lesson coming to us, and so we were most of us were beyond certain that all the authors of that song yes. uh were the blackest of the black yes. we just we just knew <laughs> we were spitting up all of our facts and everything and don't
0: disrespect the blackest song ever. I mean we
1: just yeah that's that's the barbecue like to me that's the blackest song since uh coming up the rough side of the mountain. <laughs> In my opinion. (laughs) Anyway, we just naturally assumed that the authors of the song were the members of Earth, Wind & Fire. And um, that theory was extinguished quick fast. And uh, with the help of the University of Google, uh, we quickly discovered that our guest today uh, has indeed earned her uh, PhD, uh, her her lifetime barbecue pass Mm -hmm. by writing um and i don't I don't even say like classics or hits like she's she's damn near written half my memories and some of the and I'm not talking about like the outright hit I'm talking about like I've never played the game of oh crap she wrote that too I've never had more fun discovering her 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 legacy and 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 her 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 songcraft and her life. More than our guest today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Questlove Supreme, Allie Willis, Yeah, the
3: yes. white, Allie Thank Willis. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Motherfucker Allie right, Willis. But the right Allie Willis. The right yes.
3: Allie Willis. Plus, everyone thinks I'm a black man. So when, I, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I meet anyone, they go, shit, you're a woman and you're white?
1: So, hey, you, you know. know. Uh, so I, I, I should note that uh, you are getting inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yes, tonight. What? Wow. Tonight. Can I ask, what took so long? Because you're... Uh,
3: exactly. <laughs> oh. Exactly. Talk about it, Which Allie. is why I never gave a shit about being in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, because there were a lot of people, you know, who uh, were in there who had hits, definitely, not necessarily ones that you might know mm-hmm. 50 years from today. So I just assumed, you know, I was uh, passed over didn't mean a lot to me and then when i got it i was so excited i couldn't stand it mm-hmm. so it does mean
1: a lot and i'm elated well that i'm it's i'm elated for you cuz you know well one you know as as a person that lives for uh liner notes and credits i mean maybe it's just easy to overlook a name or some you know you you've been you're ubiquitous, yet you're under the surface in the eyes of of many a, a liner note rat. But once we discovered what you did, it was like, Heesh, it's, yeah,
3: it's I, I, you know, I'm the world's best kept secret. So,
1: well, hopefully, you know. hopefully not for long. Um, so, I want to go back to your beginnings. You were now, even though you said from the valley and. Well, are, I only got through half
3: of that. I was uh, I was born in Detroit, the greatest city in the world.
1: What part of Detroit? East or west? Uh,
3: n- uh, northwest. I went to Mumford. I never which, had a
1: northwest on the show.
3: Yeah, northwest. Um, a lot of people came out of my high school. The Winans went there. Oh. The Clark sisters went there. Earl Clue, Jerry Bruckheimer. Uh oh. um,
1: Jerry Bruckheimer's
0: from Detroit. He's from yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what was what was your entry into music cuz I know that you had a history as a a copywriter at Sony yeah, or well, Columbia. Yeah,
3: Columbia, Columbia. But I was a journalism major with a minor in advertising at the University of Wisconsin, and someone told me that they had advertising departments at record companies. Yeah. So um I got a job as a secretary at Columbia and epic. Um, almost didn't get the job because I they sent me upstairs when I interviewed for a typing test, and I literally was on my eleventh time of failing. And the uh, what was the test? Typing. Yeah, like you have to do per- you know, like you have to do like a hundred words a minute. I was like so at even twenty. The, so they like dictate <laughs>
1: something to you, and you
3: yeah, you're actually reading something, and you have to type. Um, oh. and just, I wasn't getting it, but then the head of the advertising department called upstairs where I was taking the test and said, send her down. Cause they just found out that day that the secretary was quitting. <coughs> so, um, I got the job, but then within a month I was bumped up to junior copywriter. So, my, I was in charge of all the minorities, which were blacks and women. That's all I cared about anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, so sometimes I wrote the liner notes. Uh, but usually I was writing print ads for like Rolling Stone, Cream, uh, So it was Billboard. up to you to
1: collect liner notes for all those Columbia records. So like- uh,
3: well, no, it was up to me to uh, actually get the acetates as soon as the artist finished the record. Right. And then write all the advertising for it. So that was radio commercials, print ads, some cases TV, but not. So my main people that I, well, I met Janis Joplin the first day that um, I was actually a secretary. She passed away five days later, but I got in there, and then I eventually moved into her apartment. So, yeah, I have a lot of stuff, uh, like like I saw Otis Redding's plane crash. I mean, I have a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, she's, yo. Tell us. (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, about Otis? Well, wait, did, did, or, oh, well, did we
0: start with Janet? Because, like you said, you met her, but Janice. Janice. Sorry, Janice. Well, and, and then, then I her. was
3: writing promo for uh, Pearl, the album that came out actually right after she died, but of course we didn't know she was going to die. So, right. um, uh, Johnny Cash, I uh, did early stuff for. My main artist that I was in charge of though, Laura Nero, mm-hmm. uh, Barbara Streisand, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. They were considered the family stone. Were they considered an urban act? Yeah, they were put in with the black acts because they had horns. (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Not. Not. uh, Well,
1: explain to me. I'm. I'm glad you hear it because. Well, it's not like we have Clive on the show ever. Uh, He was my boss. I know. Yeah. So this is the closest I'm gonna get to it. Um, Do you remember what the atmosphere was like when you guys? Were given the final master to. There's a riot going on, because I I figured that on the heels of Stand and Woodstock and yeah. the Greatest Hits record, yeah. it was like, oh, we're, this is going to be the monster. Yeah, and you get it, and it's a whole other thing. Yeah, what was the yeah. What was the room like?
3: Um, uh people who were diehard Sly fans loved it and felt like he was progressing. Uh but I think most of the record company they wanted, you know, dance to the music right. and everyday people. And they were getting, you know, thank you for letting me be myself or you know <laughs> the
1: slow version. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um so it there it was a mix. I remember there was some like panic in the room that maybe this wasn't going to be a hit. You think? But uh you know.
0: Well wait, we're forgetting something cuz like on your coming up from Detroit. Yeah. I want to ask you at this point how your parents felt about your journey because oh, we know wow. that Joe Daddy yeah. wasn't really messing oh, yeah. with the Blakes.
3: Yeah, we can thank him for my career though, because the more resistant he oh, the was, rebel move. Okay. the more it pushed me. Um, he was not a bigot though. He really wasn't a bigot. He did it more to push my buttons, you know, and he knew that the black thing was going to be so he was like the Bunker thing that put me whatever. over the top. Yeah. Yeah, Archie Bunker though I think believed it a little more than my dad. You know, my thing is growing up in Detroit. I grew up right when Motown was like formed and coming up. So I used to go down there every time I could. Started when I was twelve, I think, and uh, I would sit out on the front lawn because you could just watch people, you know, walking in and out. But most importantly, you could hear through the walls. Really? So yeah. Just certain instruments. You could hear bass. You could hear drums. Sometimes you could hear background vocals. From the lawn. From the lawn. Yeah, because it was just in a little house. So, uh, you know, if you were sitting close enough to the house, which is how the Supremes got discovered, they were also sitting out in front. And uh, uh, I think Mickey Stevenson, who was head of A&R, Came out on the front porch and said, "Can anyone sing?" I mean, I wasn't so, there for that. How many people
0: are sitting on the lawn on the day? Uh, you
3: we- we had to be really dedicated. There were always like tourists around, but there were a few people who were like
1: planted there. Was it a twenty-four hour operation? Yeah, I'm thinking of the safety. Like, okay, well, not to really blow up their spot, but like in Brooklyn, uh, the 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 Daptone. Uh, Headquarters, which yeah. was uh Sharon Jones's uh yeah. label and everything. Like their operation is very similar where it's in a neighborhood. Yeah. Um, I don't I'm not quite certain or aware if the neighborhood knows what goes on in that house. Yeah. Um but I always wonder, like with Motel, like was it a twenty four hour operation? Was it secure? It's you know when people like I was never and...
3: I was never there at night, but my understanding is yes, twenty four hours. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you know during the day there'd always be tourists there, um, and then there would be you know the lawn sitters. Um, there's actually a little patch of dirt now you know today Mm -hmm. uh right in front of the big uh you know those big uh historical landmark those green and gold they're not plaques they're big they're like five feet tall and it says motown studios and it gives the history so there's a little patch of dirt because people stand there to read the plaque But um, I'm really uh, friendly with everyone running Motown now, which is uh, uh, headed by Barry Gordy's niece, Robin Terry. So uh, there's talk of naming that patch of dirt for my ass, basically. (laughs) Really? Yes. Yes. Which would be my proudest moment ever.
0: (laughs) So when did the Motown people, whether it be Barry or whoever the artist is, when did they discover that you were
3: who you were? Like, cause- uh, Not until Motown the musical opened. Really? And, yeah, because I never got inside. I was always outside. And then when September 1st came out and then, and then Boogie Wonderland, uh-huh. um, the Detroit Free Press did a thing, you know, like the local girl makes good. And they, that was the first time I was ever in the studio cause they did the story in the studio. Then I never ever went back in until I did this project that I worked on for five years. And this would have been maybe 2014 that I actually got into Motown and we recorded a piece of the, this project there, which was a uh, 5,000 Detroiters as lead singers uh, doing a song about Detroit. Okay, Um, 5,000 lead singers. Yeah and, uh, recourse for yes. Yeah, it was crazy. It took five years. There's also oh. a visual component to it. All self-funded okay. nearly killed me, but I love that city and I'll do anything. And then, uh, only uh, within this last year was I introduced to Rob and Terry. They heard about my collection cause I have a very vast, uh, pop culture, kitsch, kitsch, pop culture, yes, though, know. kind of <laughs> off, the center line. So they came out to see it because they have a lot of Motown stuff, like really obscure stuff. And then I became inseparable from them. They so came
0: th- to your house. That they came, yeah. Like they a-
3: flew out wow. for a day. Uh, and then just in Detroit, like three weeks ago, they threw me a party and, and I had my birthday uh, at Motown. That was a surprise uh, party that happened there. So everyone that was on the tour her, you know, they stop, they play this little film when you start the tour. It's the. Have you ever seen that film? Oh, my God. No. Oh, you'll have a heart attack. Really? It's like classic Motown footage, but not that you usually see. Oh, like behind the scenes. And it's the first thing that they show you when you take the tour. So then they stop the tour and they said, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we know how much Motown means to, you know, everyone, but there's a certain person that, you know, is here today, because, you know, I never learn how to play. I write the music, too, but I don't know how to play. Mm-hmm. And it's I write the exact same way that I did when I sat out on the lawn, because I'd learn bass parts, because that's what you could hear. Or I'd learn, like, drum patterns. Right. And I still write that way. I, would like, kind of hear something, and, you know, then it... Uh, it goes down. Anyway, so they, they said, you know, it meant more to this person than anyone, and then the whole place sang the happy birthday it was pretty unbelievable. That is amazing. Yeah. That is How amazing. You so out? my Motown thing, though, is new, and I never met Barry Gordy, which was a quest of mine forever. And when Motown the Musical opened in Detroit, it's at a theater that is literally right down the block from Motown. Um And uh, but one of my friends directed Motown the musical, Charles Randolph Wright, and uh, he said you're meeting Barry Gordy, and I had uh, I had a camera because I have videoed my life since 1978, so uh, really yes, literally every significant moment and trillions of the insignificant ones, (laughs) and but nothing um, rated R. Uh, Everything's on there It was the 70s Everything's on there And uh, anyway So I I saw Charles go off to Barry Gordy And I could hear Barry Gordy going She wrote what? Yes. (laughs) She wrote what? Yes And then I got to meet him I have all of this on film And uh, you know As I'm giving him kind of my final hug I thanked him And he said no thank you which, to me, were the greatest words ever uttered to me in my life. Because I idolized him forever.
1: I mean, we're still thanking you. So Thank you. <laughs> that That is crazy. Wait, so how old were you when you left Detroit? How long did you stay I went,
3: uh, When I went to college, which was 17. Then I would come home for vacations. And then once I was 21, <laughs> I went to New York. Uh,
1: yeah, I went to New York, and that was it. So what was the... Uh, did you have any 20 grand experiences up in Detroit? Uh,
3: Only in that I was always dying to go there. You know, I mean, I went a couple times, but that Baker's Keyboard Lounge, do you know about Baker's?
1: Uh, I've not heard of it. Baker's
3: is really where the Funk Brothers came from. It's still in existence. It's a jazz club. And, um, you know, the Motown, the Funk Brothers, they were all jazz players. Right. So, um, most of them came out of there, but it was, uh, you know, my father did not like me, uh, having these, uh, tastes that I had for black culture. So I wasn't really allowed to go out. He couldn't stop me from going to Motown, especially once I got my driver's license. But I always like to say, I did get the last word with my father Passed away in uh, 2002. And the very, very last words that I said to him, I leaned down and I whispered in his ear, <laughs> I just got the gig to write the color purple. And he was, he was <laughs> gone within the hour. Gone. <laughs> gone. <laughs> <Wow>. So <laughs> whatever he put me through, I got him good. Oh, God.
0: All right, y'all. I mean, my whole house? uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
4: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about Indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact
5: set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
1: Sibling wise, are you the only sibling,
3: or no? I have an older brother and sister. One still in Detroit. My sister lives in Omaha, but they did not have a fascination with Detroit the way that
1: I did. Were you the middle child, youngest? Oh, you were the young- youngest. Yeah. Okay, explain. Yeah, explained. Um. So back to so when you left Detroit and uh, college and whatnot, when did you did you go to LAX and um I well I had the job at the record company
3: from 69 actually to 74 but in 1972 I wrote my first song okay and I took it to my boss at the record company the head of the advertising department actually I took the first 3 that I wrote and um he took those to a guy named Ron Alexenberg he was head of Ron Epic Lexenberg, at the yeah. time mm-hmm. And then at, uh at Luxembourg, not knowing it was me, because it was a conflict of interest to work there and be an artist. And want to be an artist. Right? And I didn't want to lose my job. Um, Alexenberg liked it and then took it to Clive. So Clive had to sign off on it. And then I got a deal. So I had to quit. Um, and I had one album that came out, first 10 songs I ever wrote. Did not make, a, it actually got great reviews, but it had zero sales. Okay. So um, a, uh, I was doing four, I only did four live appearances. I was terrified of performing. Mm-hmm. Um, the first performance they put me uh, opening for a folk singer... <laughs> I had an all-black band dressed as sequin so. vegetables, and everyone in my band like went on to do something great. <laughs> us,
0: wait, who's the band I am about to say, put it. here. Uh, I'll be like well, James Gadsden and all one, these like monsters. Uh, yeah,
3: well, Bob Babbitt, who was uh,
1: yeah, <laughs>
0: your
3: <face>. wait, <laughs> yeah, um, they liked me. I don't know. The greatest thing is that tonight at the so- Songwriters Hall of Fame induction. Uh-huh. The uh, background singer is the very, very first sing- uh, singer that I ever hired to be in my band at the time. Fonzie Thornton. Fonzie Thornton.
1: Yes. He's getting inducted too? No, no. He's, oh. he's <sighs> singing okay.
3: uh, uh, backgrounds on Neutron Dance in September, which they're- Fonzie's like Luther, like just name it. Like, well, back, it, it, yeah, like best friends everything. with Luther since kindergarten. But the amazing everything. thing is Luther was Fonzie's piano player. Mm-hmm. And and Fonzi actually had a group. There were three of them. Yeah. And so I ended up hiring the three of them and leaving Luther behind. Luther was pissed off. Can, but Luther that that was my very first music click. That was like family
1: to me. Speak oh wait, now that you're here, all right, I gotta ask you. Sort quasi personal. Does the name Billy Jackson mean anything to you? I mean, I know... uh, Uh, Formerly uh, of The Times, I know he wrote So In Love for The Times, but he he was also a staff producer at Columbia.
3: No, I don't think I know the same Billy Jackson, but uh, So In Love is absolutely one of my favorite all-time records. Anyway, so, um, uh, so what happened was, so I go out on tour. It was disastrous. I never relaxed one second on stage. And um, I didn't want to tour anymore. And then I lost my deal. Like four months after the album came out, that uh, night, one of my uh, my best friends were the Harlettes. They sang, you know, Bette Midler. Right. And uh, one of them, Sharon Red, who went on to yeah. have like a bunch of like disco things. So Sharon was, Red. That was my best best. Wait, friend. she was a harlot sharon red yes and as charlotte crossley charlotte do you know charlotte i don't know that name but yeah sharon sharon red
1: yeah
0: who was sharon red why should we know her well she had a bunch of disco yeah i mean she's just the,
1: the name that you know yeah that you just but as a dj i know that name
3: so i lost uh my record deal she said you shouldn't be alone come to this recording session i'm doing I don't want to fucking be at a recording session if I've just lost my deal, you know? <laughs> um, but she was, like, adamant about it, and I went, and it was uh, another one of these unbelievable things that I am blessed to have happened to me. We opened the door to the uh, studio. It was the Hit Factory, which is where I also recorded my one album that came out, and produced by Jerry Ragovoy, by the way. Okay. And... Um, Opened the door and the singer, who I didn't know, took one look at me and she literally ran over to me and got on her knees and started bowing and said, what are you doing here? You should go home and write me a song. And it was Bonnie Raitt.
2: Ooh. Whoa.
3: So I got my very first cover the next day. And uh, went on the road with her for a uh, short while singing backgrounds. And you know, then you figure, well, it's going to roll, but it didn't roll. I'd get a couple things cut a year, but nothing significant. And then Patti LaBelle in 1978, same person, Sharon Redd, uh, yeah. had my songs because the Harlots got a record deal. Mm-hmm. And it was with the same producer. It was doing Patti LaBelle. Patty heard the songs and then flew me up to San Francisco. I was living in LA by that time, and flew me to San Francisco uh, to make demos, because I didn't have any money to make demos. She was just hearing like piano vocals. Uh And then Patty became the first one to regularly cut the songs. She said, I I have a friend who's also up here recording, going to Studio B, he needs lyrics. I hated just writing lyrics. And I didn't want to be with the friend. I'm finally with the big cheese. So what do I want to be with the friend for? So for two days, I avoid going into this studio. Um, she was in Studio A. He was in Studio B, way down the hall. And I was uh, going uh, walking down the hall, and the door to Studio B open, and I go, oh, shit, that's the guy. And I head into the bathroom. <laughs> So I'm in the bathroom. I had to pee anyway. So it was you fine. were that shy? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, well, it's I wanted to be with Patty. She didn't want to fuck with him. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, I'm like sitting on the toilet, and the door to the bathroom opens, <laughs> and I hear clump, 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 and these two male feet slide under the bathroom door. H R. Right. And all he he all I hear in this like deep voice is like uh, Patty said you're a really good writer uh-huh. you know come into Studio B so I go into Studio B and I figure I'm trapped I'm like a speed writer anyway. surprised you ain't cussing
0: out for coming in the bathroom no 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 okay. it was like,
3: no because I knew I was messing up by not going in oh, I mean I'm you know. I'm I finally meet like a star and I'm already not doing what she, you know, said you to it can do. be
1: overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Was it overwhelming so, or just Well, this was overwhelming because we had we he had all these tracks and so I'm sitting across from him and we're just firing these lyrics off and it was not until the middle of the second song, swear to god, that he had a phone call and I really started staring at him, you know, and I went Oh, my God. It's
1: Herbie Hancock. <laughs> uh, wait, do not tell me this is how I'll Just Come Run Into Me got written.
3: Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was <laughs> the first one. I rewrote that before I realized it was Herbie Hancock.
1: Shh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, this is what you don't know. And I can't even believe you know that song. No, you. this is what you don't know. That song is a very significant song Wow. to my... my generation my click wow another detroiter that you might not be aware of a producer named jay dilla oh
3: i mean i'm aware you've um, heard that yeah
1: yeah uh he his gift if if you heard the term like oh musician's musician or songwriter Yeah, yeah usually he's like an obscure person that the regular people don't get yeah but only the special people get yeah He was the producers, producers, producers. Wow. So, and not even to put myself in that category, like, only the special people got this guy. But what he managed to do, of course, you know how hip-hop works. Uh, A lot of work is derivative off of of other people, you know, sampling and all that stuff. So, uh, which is weird, I'm saying this, as of this date, 18 years ago, Fantastic Volume 2 came out today. Mm -hmm. As of this speaking. I'm sure that this will go on way. <laughs> yeah, this, this, this show will be on. In It'll s- still be the anniversary September. year, though. Right, it's right, fine. right. Yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, normally an album like Sunlight wouldn't have necessarily gotten a second look. Uh, I mean, it. There's some classics on it, but it wasn't until Jay Dylan made us pay attention to it. Mm. And especially, just come running to me. That means that's almost like, you know, you're tired of people telling you like how much the friends theme means to them. I never get tired of it. but well, yeah, I'm I sure get that tired get of it all the, the time. song myself, right? Like, not of people telling that's me. That's yeah. like for the Neil Soul generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that means everything. Like of all you, like of all the things you've done. Yeah, that song means the most to me.
3: That is so shocking because I couldn't even sing it to you now. That's like how little.
1: I mean, I, I mean, it's very, the reason why yeah. like I hired uh, vocal order players and stuff. Even when wow. Herbie when Herbie comes around, I was like, really? Like that's what you want? Wow! Like, I got everything else. Like why that song? And Amazing. Then, well, we we wrote like three or four songs
3: like that day, of which yeah. that was you know one of them. And then uh, it was
1: the feats don't fail it, me now. The next uh, album, yeah, and it, it was almost like a sequel to it. Yeah, but that's yo dog. The, wow, the fact that that almost didn't happen, and you were avoiding him oh, like to- the flake. It only
3: happened because he had nerve to come into the bathroom.
1: I wish Bill was here, man. And <laughs> Farm So yeah. what? What tell a song? Yeah, can you can you give uh, me a name, please? Sorry. Yes, I'd okay. I, and, so basically, uh, uh, okay, I'll, I'll play the uh, the original.
0: Up. teach us.
1: I haven't done this in so long because, you know. I haven't heard it since then. So basically.
3: Literally, I have. Maybe the last time I
1: heard this was 1980. Uh, I listen to this about 10 times a week.
2: (laughs) Wow. I don't
0: understand
3: how you write something like this without knowing how to write music. Just follow along. I mean, because I didn't i didn't know how to play so i had to like teach myself so he wrote
1: the music first and told you to come with lyrics yeah music well yeah
3: and then i sat with him and
1: we wrote the lyrics yeah that's it's crazy to me because i don't even is this the first time that he sang lyrics to
3: uh yeah and it's why i never put together really that it was herbie hancock because what does he need lyrics for but he had just gotten the voc order
0: Wait, Turner, I, never, I don't feel like I heard Herbie sing before.
1: Yeah. He's used to have a crush on her when I was there. Yeah. Saying.
3: Unbelievable. I haven't heard that in so long.
1: So for us at least um, Hang on one second.
0: Oh, you're going to get the J.D. Yes, of course. I want. What was your singing voice like?
3: Uh, mm. my, my singing voice is as high as my speaking voice is low. Like like in the
1: Ozone. Yeah. It's like my You're hair. an anomaly. Well, wait. I, that's the thing I want to know. <coughs> um, well, I really want to get to Boogie Wonderland, but your the imagery, like what, all your subject matters and your lyrics are just on some next level. Like it, as far as the in, the imagery is it, concerned, if the, I'm
3: left to my own devices, they it is. But um certain like I was very upset writing September, even though I was so excited, I couldn't stand it. But it was such a song lyric, lyric, and you know, I was this journalism major, I wanted to write this, you know, incredible poetry or, uh, you know, story and not have lines be as common as, do you remember the 21st night of September, love was changing the minds of pretenders while chasing the clouds away, that cloud line, I was ready to slip my wrist, but um you know, you're writing in that case with Maurice and uh and Al McKay also, who's yeah, unbelievably mm-hmm. fantastic. But the lyric end of it was just with Maurice. Um It was so
1: dark though. But for such a happy song. Yeah. Well,
3: dark is Boogie Wonderland. That's the one that's really dark. Well in the verses. Yeah. But um but uh, I learned an incredible lesson, the single most important lesson of my songwriting career from Maurice during September uh, because I was very, um, he always used the term or, or the nonsensical word, body eye, right when he would write anything so if it was like he was doing that's the way of the world you know he would have gone yeah um so that came right at the top of the chorus of september you know body do sadie remember body ah dancing in september body never <laughs> was a cloudy day so i kept saying throughout the writing because we wrote september to be the uh only the, the new single the greatest on the greatest hits, on the greatest hits. And at the same time, we were writing the whole I Am album. Right. So um, it took, you know, months to actually complete any of the songs because they were all being written at once. Right. Um, so for September, I kept saying, oh, my God, this is such a hit. We can't leave body. Ah, it's got to be, like, real words. And at first, he was kind of humoring me. It's like okay, we'll, like, replace them, but we don't need to do it now because we know this section works. Right. So we are at the... At midnight, uh, we were at Sunset Sound in L.A., Mm -hmm. and uh, um, the whole album was due plus September. Had to be out of the studio at midnight. It was, like, 10 minutes to midnight, and I went into the studio, and I did literally get on my knees... And I'm clutching his thighs. The man had the best thighs in the music industry. I got (laughs) to tell you. and Yeah, probably. And um, begging, like we have to change body out of real words. In his biography, he actually says I was crying while I did this. So I was very emotional about this because I think, Oh my God, this song's going to go in the toilet. Cause no one's who's going to know what body I means. But
1: by then body, I was in the earth, Wind, and fire lexicon. They yeah they had done. They yeah. Snuck, not as prominently, right. but yes.
3: Yeah. And, uh, like sun goddess or something yeah, right, like that. Right, right, right. Um, in your head, what would have fit those? Well, three that syllables? was part of the problem. It, Everything was corny, you know, because you only have three syllables. Give me
1: examples. Like what was um, tossed around?
3: B- well, when we did try and white words, it was still stuff that nauseated me. Like you know, oh my love, or you oh, know,
2: my love. yeah, na, na,
3: na, yeah, no, no, na, na, no na, na. it was hideous. It was hideous. <laughs> so um, anyway, but I'm still begging him, and you know, he was calm. It took a lot to like rile him. Uh, I, I, to this day, like never saw him angry or anything or lift his voice to, uh, you know, to anyone, just this serene being. And so I uh, finally said, I like scream, what the fuck does body (laughs) on me? And he just said, who the fuck cares? And that was it. (laughs) That was the end of it. And then the record was out in three weeks and my life changed.
1: Our mm-hmm. tummy's changed because that was the barbecue jam of all jams. Yeah. yeah,
3: no, it still is. It's the song that wouldn't die. It, it's it literally gets bigger every
1: year. I still mm-hmm. need to know
3: more about body Like Where
0: did Maurice? I mean, it's, it's just a random
1: sound. They've just always, you know, since that's the way the world. No, since open our eyes, they just. I could bah, tell. Bah, bah, I could
0: tell you what body I means. Okay, Steve. It means cha ching. That's <laughs> what it
3: means. <laughs> Do you know, uh, I know you'll know it, Um, Hot Dog It? Uh, It was Ramsey Lewis. Ramsey Lewis, Lewis, yeah. Because that, to me, is one of my favorite Maurice vocals, and that's all, uh, I can't actually remember. Who's that dogging around is the only actual vocal in there. Right, right. Otherwise, it's all body Body uh, type, just phrases and sounds.
0: All right, y'all. I mean, my whole house? uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
4: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanika on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine
5: you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
1: All right, we we majorly skipped. Yeah, we went straight to Earthbound Fire. I want to get to Can't Let Go, but let's let's go back to the beginning.
3: Another one that I thought insignificant, and that song, no. Can't Let Go. Yeah, that is
1: I still that's still my DJ set. Like that to me, wow, that should have been. That wow. was a, that was a contender. I think that it was been. a B side of something. It was, I think, yeah. It but it should have it should have been a hit. Mm. Like that to me. Why wow. do they,
3: That's uh, incredible that it's my obscure, more obscure ones that we, you like, which I love.
1: That's not
0: incredible. That's Wait, wait, wait till love. I get to
1: Angela Bofield. Anyway. Oh,
0: <laughs> oh, my God. I got
3: you were...
1: <laughs> I was... oh. No, but it's... oh, my God. Oh, God. You are oh,
3: pulling them. Wait, my Angela Bofield song? I don't
1: know which one. Hell no. She, she wrote the title track to what? the one what? album that really didn't make it. Which one? Oh, okay. uh, something About You. Is it, oh, it's yeah. in between Too Tough and uh, Angel of the Night. But the. But Angel of the night. Here's was the the funny story song. is that is. even it though is. that didn't get much I mean I've heard first four records, like my dad was the biggest Angela Bufield. Me too. Addict. That album didn't get that much play, but here's the funny thing. Uh growing up in the don't touch my Don't Touch the Stereo mm-hmm. household, there was a scratch uh on side one of that Angela Bufield record. So you already know, and so you know the way that our stereo was positioned was like far away from. We had speakers all over the house, universal speakers, mm. but the stereo was in the living room. So, like, if you want to change it, you got to go downstairs. Like, you could listen to it in any room in the house, but you still had to change and Go downstairs, it, go downstairs. downstairs. Right. yeah. And so, because of the way that the wax culture is. I think it's the first line of the second verse of Something About You, which I think is, you've been hungry too long. Sounds it always like skips. Me. My cousin's whispering dirty words. says, you've been hungry too long. It says, you've been hungry too long. It says, you've been hungry. <laughs> Shit used to always skip. <laughs> and that memory, that is etched in my brain Truthfully, like a I tattoo. Can't, I can't even remember. Was the chorus like, I think there's there's something thing about, about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah.
3: That's yeah. all I remember, though.
1: Yeah, but it's just like... Yeah, but the thing is, is that... I used to word, use the word hungry all
3: the time in lyrics, though, so I know that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so, all the
1: time. So... Yeah. What was you hungry for? Everything. Mm. All the time. Mm. Mm. Okay, so as a songwriter... Okay, I'm, I'm taking it back to Herbie. 77, you're in the yeah. bathroom. So... 78. Well, 78. Yeah. How... How terrifying was it living check to check? Uh, Like, and how does a songwriter make a living in L.A.? Like, is it like you just wait for the quarter to come? Did you get a publishing deal? Did you, like, how does that work? uh, I know
3: I was pretty starving to
1: death. When I first
3: lost the job at uh, Columbia Epic, I became a hatchet girl at comedy clubs. Okay. So uh, at Catch a Rising Star, oh. and then there was a club called Reno Sweeney, which was a cabaret that uh, bet uh, Melissa Manchester, Barry Manilow, Manhattan Transfer came mm. out of there. Oh, you clicked. Yeah. So I um, uh, was hanging coats at Reno Sweeney and well, at both of the clubs. Yeah. And I was also hanging posters. I was going around the city with like glue and shit. Um, But I moved to California because it was, if if I'm going to starve to death, I'm doing it in the sun. Mm -hmm. So I actually moved in (laughs) 76. And uh, no, I was getting, I I was on unemployment, um, really not making money at all. I did get one publishing deal with like a $5,000 advance, which to me was like a million dollars.
1: Was going home... Back home ever an option? Like I gotta go back Never. to Detroit.
3: No, because of my father
1: situation. So and you I, write and I, letters like, Hey dad, I'm I'm doing fine and it was like Yeah, uh. no,
3: and every time I got a record cut, it was by a black artist and then I'd have to go through the whole like conversation again. So not I, I only got reattached to Detroit uh seven or eight years ago. And then I became obsessive about it. I always loved it in my heart, right. but I wasn't going back constantly. Um, so, so uh, he
1: wasn't impressed with September and Dad. I got a number one hit. Not blah, to, blah, 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 blah.
3: not to my face, but I always heard from all my friends. Like, you know, if we see your dad walking down the street, we got to go to the other side because he'll talk about you for two hours, Aww. and he'll show us clip. He'll show them clippings and. All of this, but not not to me. Okay. Really didn't give it up until right at the end. And then I sent him out with the color
1: purple. So, <laughs> yeah. so even, so how do songwriters get paid? Is the artist like, okay, I, I, I see you're starving. Here's here's a couple hundred bucks just to keep mm, you on your feet. It, it
3: was, really, you know, all my friends were songwriters. I, my whole little clique. Some became performers. Those people were making money. But the ones who were just songwriters, we were basically just starving together. It was quite an illustrious group. Everyone went on to like have hits and all pretty much around the same time. We all kind of hit at the same time. But uh, no, we were collecting unemployment and um, really that's it. Like when Patty LaBelle paid for me to go to San Francisco – that was it. It's, you know, my the the Harlettes were up there, you know, which is how she heard it.
1: So they were like giving me money for food and she paid for the tickets. So, so, uh, that Tasty album, uh, yeah. Patty, was that the only time you worked with her before you got to Stir It Up? Uh, I was on a or couple d- albums of her, I
3: had a couple songs per album, okay, okay, for two or three albums. Right. Yeah, Stir It Up was like way after, well, relatively way after, okay.
1: Okay, uh, so with uh, I know that you also. Okay, I got to get to. It's it's, a it's big to be No, it's a lot, but. Woo! How? What was on your mind with Boogie Wonderland? I can tell you exactly. I've been waiting for this moment. I can all tell you. She life. got some other
3: jewels she holding for you too. Don't right.
0: Forget about the other one with Craig filling oh, oh! 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 Yeah! 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 yeah.
3: Okay. Um. <laughs> Uh, okay, so Boogie Wonderland I wrote with John Lynn. Yeah. John Lynn had written Sun Goddess for Earth Wind and Fire. Right. And he was kind of, he was managed by the same uh, Cavallo Ruffalo, who right. you know managed uh, Earth Wind and Fire. Denise Williams, like Prince. A, yeah, yeah, Prince. yeah. And, oh, that's the story I need to tell you. So remember Prince. Yes. Um, and uh, so Maurice kept saying you you two should write together. So um, this would have been in March, I think, in 1978. So I already knew I had a whole bunch of Earth, Wind & Fire stuff coming out, but nothing had come out yet. John had had something out, and uh, we wanted to use the word boogie because every song had boogie in it at that time. Right. But we didn't want to use it in the normal sense of the word, which, you know, to dance. And... um, I, the night before, had seen the movie Looking for Mr. Goodbar, (laughs) which Diane Keaton movie. She goes out to discos every night. Like, her life is completely falling apart. But she gets into the club, and, you know, her life is all of a sudden magical. And she brings home a different guy every night to sleep with. And uh, the audience is led to believe that one of these guys is a serial killer, not what you thought you were going to hear for Boogie Wonderland. So we wanted to write a song about someone whose life was falling apart but would escape into this world of dance every night where everything would be okay. So we knew we wanted a really dark verse and we wanted a really sparkling, happy chorus. So... um yeah. The, uh, and we wrote the song actually in order. Um, so the, uh, you know, that verse, which people always come up to me and they say, Boogie Wonderland, it's such a happy song. And Sweet. I always say, have you listened to the lyric?
4: Never. So, but
3: people <laughs> sing it like, you know, you sing it phonetically. People sing along with it, but they right. don't know what they're singing. Mm-hmm. So the verse is, uh, Midnight creeps so slowly into hearts of men who need more than they get. Daylight deals a bad hand to a woman who's laid too many bets. The mirror stares you in the face and says, "Uh uh-uh, baby, it don't work. You say your prayers. Though you don't care, you dance to shake the hurt. Then we wanted to uh, – the the song was actually written in a different structure than they recorded it in because right. uh-huh. they go from that, they do the little dance, Boogie Wonderland chant, right. and then they go right back into Sounds Fly Through the Night, I Chase My Vinyl Dreams to Boogie Wonderland, I Find Romance When I Start to Dance in Boogie Wonderland. Um, but we inserted the chorus in between the verses. So it went from this dark, depressing, you're looking in the mirror and feeling like shit to – all of the love in the world can't be gone. All the need to be loved can't be wrong. All the records are playing, and my heart keeps saying, "Boogie Wonderland." Um, and we wanted that to sound almost Broadway-ish, and how happy that that <laughs> music was. It was supposed to be like a, a a bipolar mood swing. Yes, it was into the chorus. Yeah, yeah. Um, and
1: uh, when you write these lyrics, uh. Do you just come out with the complete prose or like, are you thinking of rhythmic structure? Are you thinking of, because that's a lot, you're, you're placing a lot of poetic thought into the imagery. Yeah. But in my head, I'm like, okay, well, how's this going to fit in this line and this line and that line? And how can we?
3: Well, we, wrote, we, we, I, we definitely wrote the music. For, we wrote the music to the verse first and then put the words to that. Then we jumped to the chorus music and lyrics. I mean, every song is different. Um, I knew we were actually trying to write for Earth Wind and Fire. Um, but uh, you know, so we knew it had to have, like, you know, a certain rhythmic thing to it. Uh, and because the chords were so dark in the in the verse, that seemed to fit. And the first few lines of the chorus came easy but we still didn't have Boogie in it. And we we didn't know how to work it in and we didn't really know what to call the song. And Oh, we, the chorus was last, Oh, uh, Yes, and the words Boogie Wonderland were, was the very last thing that we got. So Whoa. what was the chorus? It was it originally was, mm. called Johnny's Casino Lounge. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and we, <laughs> yeah. We got the phone book out because we said, well, let's look up names of clubs. So we looked up clubs and we looked up bars. And one, we liked Johnny's, and then there was another one called the Casino Lounge. So the original chorus started out um, Come to Johnny's Casino Lounge. That was the original
1: thing. You just became my all time favorite person on Earth <laughs> <I man>. said- <laughs>
3: Instead of you know, and then uh, then we went no no it doesn't sound important enough. Earth Wind and Fire is not going to sing Johnny's Casino Lounge, so then we came to uh, you know all the love in the world can't be gone. Right, and when we got to all the records I'm playing, and my keep saying when we got there. It was, we wanted Broadway, we wanted Cinderella, we wanted, you know, something. So that just felt like it was this incredibly Broadway-ish line. Neither one of us liked theater at all, but it was, you know, what is like My Fair Lady or something. It just felt like that kind of melody to us. So once we got rid of Johnny's Casino Lounge, we tried to fit it in the end uh chinese casino lounge you know
1: when you're um, when you're writing these songs are you thinking first let's write a hit or you're mm, just trying to express an idea
3: well in, in my head i always wanted hits
1: so because it's so layered and so complex it was like I'd, it didn't dawn on me
3: that anything was different about it, which it, it, it was. seriously. Yeah, because I, my whole thing was there used to be this massive discussion between what is art and what is commercial. And I grew up on Top 40 Radio. I loved Top 40. So to me, the greatest songs were when you could mesh those two things together as opposed to making a decision between going one way or the other. So I was always trying to shove that in. That song felt the whole way through like, okay, that is exactly what we're doing. So, um, but but Boogie Wonderland only came about because we realized that even though we set out to write a song using that word, we hadn't used it. So we went, okay, screw it. Instead of the club name, Boogie Wonderland is going to be... uh, 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 What this needs to be is the state of mind that this person is in when they go into the club. So that state
1: of mind became Boogie Wonderland. So are you having these philosophical discussions as you're doing it? Yes, and I love writing that way. So is there like a a, a vision board or something like, okay, so... What do we uh, want to write about? And I
3: mean, you know, I I I have written with thousands of stupid people. <laughs> thousands. It's a drag to write with someone stupid because you can't have these kind of discussions. I love having these kind of discussions because you really like break it down and you love know you. like what the goal she is.
1: She just became my all time favorite. Is. Dude, <laughs> like, she's just like everything. I'm in love right now. This is amazing. This, this is but, my, my cold scoring.
3: <laughs> but John Lynn was someone you could have those kind of discussions with. So, um, uh, you know, that was really one of those songs where you're kind of intellectualizing
1: it the whole way through. See, I just always felt that Boogie Wonderland was a I mean, that to me was the when we talk about troll culture, uh the 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 especially like in today's uh uh in internet society, when you speak of troll culture. Yeah. The the art of of uh, uh, provoking someone or whatever. Now, usually in in the canon, in the songwriting canon of Earth, Wind and Fire, yeah, Boogie Wonderland isn't necessarily in anyone's top ten. But I always re- surface uh, Earth, Wind and Fire fans were like, ah, they try to do a disco song, and yeah, just yeah, dismissed yeah, it. yeah. And I always had to argue. I'm like, yo, like Boogie Wonderland and Hey Ya are almost oh, in the same. Oh, my favorite. Hey Ya is yeah. in the same category. Like yeah. Dre's actually making fun of the audience that's embracing it. Yeah. And he says, like they're not even listening to the, the lyrics. Where like, he's literally saying, you know, people are just want to shake their ass, but they're not even peeping the darkness of the yeah, song right yeah. now. And I noticed, I always felt that Boogie Wonderland was done with a wink. I thought it was let's make fun of disco.
3: Well, it was with you, a wink.
1: You, I need to get you the demo, of Boogie Wonderland. Yes, you do. Which you could actually get to
3: <laughs> right now because I do have it on my website. Yes, But um, it was, uh, we always felt like we wrote it as a song, they cut it as a groove. Like it was never meant to be all
1: orchestrated like that. Um, oh, so once you had the, the demo of the lyrics.
3: Then they can do whatever they want. So when you heard
1: the final product, what would you think? Uh,
3: well, I was at a bunch of the sessions. It took me to hear that song as an oldie to go, Oh my God, it's really good. So at the time... I, I thought they fucked it up. Yeah. Um, really? Yes, even though I was very excited, like we were at the string and horn sessions, that just in terms of being in the room with those kind of strings, those kind of horns, was exciting, but it did not feel appropriate for the song that we had written. I mean, now in hindsight... um, you know, I I absolutely adore it. But at the time, it's like, what is all this stuff doing on here?
1: You know, but even in your Broadway vision of it, because Earthwind and Fire is theater; they are high high theater. So yeah, we I don't uh, think they knew it at the time. So I always felt this is a multi layered troll and yeah, mastery. Like I can see that. Yeah, but it, it,
3: the the uh, demo was was different the demo um i I, you would have to hear the demo john singing lead on that i will get you the demo
1: i think that would be really interesting for you to hear extremely uh also within in the stone we can't ignore that you wrote in the stone yeah what is that about
3: uh at the time (laughs) i had no idea you know the first thing he ever said to me maurice literally the very first thing was do you what do you know about eastern philosophies and it was like i knew nothing i didn't even know what he was talking about what that? i always say i was as evolved as pop rocks i was like <laughs> i was like strictly you know pop culture top 40 radio television and you know i knew he was into all this you know deep shit so i said i didn't know anything so he gave me a list of books Oh, and sent Homework. me to yes uh, and sent me to a store in LA called the Bodhi Tree which was the yeah, yeah like just you could smell the incense like a mile away <laughs> it's still there no it well, no it's no. not there's a i meant the culture is still there that's yeah, for sure yeah yeah
1: it's not physically still there but yeah. there's someone that was associated with that place that has another place similar to it uh, yeah 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 i yeah. think so
3: So um, he gave me 10 books, and he said, the one you have to start with, uh, it was called The Greatest Salesman in the World. And I thought, oh, it's about advertising. I I got this down. And I opened it up, and immediately, it's not about advertising. It's, you know, the prophets, and they're in the old Egypt. And I I got so confused immediately, (laughs) immediately. Um, But... uh, um, in the stone on that album on i I am uh-huh. was supposed to be the song that kind of really got all of their philosophy in there. So I never understood it as we were writing. He would basically tell me what he wanted to say, and I would give him ten different lines that that said that. Um now, of course, I understand everything. It's very let alone the phrase I am. He said, that's what I'm going to call the album. I said, what does I am mean? Now it's in every spiritual philosophy, you right. know, that that there is. Uh, but, you know, very much about presence being in the now, uh, in the stone, uh the fact that that um uh, you know uh culturally that everything kind of is pre-written, that man kind of, there's this mindset for what man is. And we have past, and he very much believed in past lives right. and future lives. But that one, I was flying by the seat of my pants.
0: All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you like me, you're already in your Airbnb app, I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
4: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess the 1950s folk singer, who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about Indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear, and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce.
1: Did you have a good rapport and friendship with Maurice White? I'm only asking because uh, what makes I Am really significant is the fact that even though, even though, all right, so, like, uh, uh, and uh, Steve, even though Maurice's Richard Nichols, uh, which was Charles Stephanie, yeah, passed away, uh, kind of leaving him to. Hold the ball and hold everything together. Yeah. Which, I mean, for the all in all record, I felt like the, the just the sheer adrenaline of, okay, now I have to drive this car and make Charles proud of me. Yeah. But I always felt like, because you, you I mean, you come into play, but also with David Foster. He brought us the same day we were both brought in. You two were brought this. Did you guys work together, per se, or were you, like, separate camps?
3: Uh, No, on some songs together, and then I also did, he had a solo album with Jay Graydon called Airplay. Okay. Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Graydon and Foster were kind of a team at that point.
1: You know what? I've had that Airplay album forever. I didn't know that was David Foster. Yeah,
3: yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Sings on that record. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah.
3: Wow. I, 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 Another person was, I, well, I, I can't remember the single. I think could it be all right? Something
1: like that. It, it's a yacht rock classic. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Oh,
3: well, I like it then. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, if you like dentist office rock. Yeah, it's, a, it's yacht not rock. A, a, smooth, Ellie. not a classic. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> but I love like. <laughs> That cheesy Kenny Loggins, you like Kitsch art? I love it. yes. I love Kitsch music. I love, yes, I do too. Yeah, so I, I do too. The Airplay album is, is right up there. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. It was very 1981, which yeah. is when it was. Yeah, all that L.A.
1: musician Toto yeah. sound, I, I live for that stuff. Wait, are you? To- oh on,
3: oh sorry. no, Toto uh, was recording next door to us the whole way through. I am. We had both studios locked out for like a year at Sunset Sound. Really? Or at Hollywood. No, uh, yeah, I Am was cut both at Hollywood Sound and at uh, Sunset Sound. I have a good Hollywood Sound story. Tell us. Because Verdine, well, Michael Jackson was recording next door to us a lot of the time. He would record during the day, Toto would come in at night. Um, and uh, so Verdine kept saying, Michael Jackson wants to meet you. And. Um, it just, we never coincided that we were there at the same time. And I think it was 81, I guess, finally we're there at the same time. And he said, let's go right now. He's there. I go in, Michael Jackson stands up. We, he grabs my hand, we're shaking hands, and someone runs into the studio and says, Richard Pryor just set himself on fire. Whoa. And Michael Jackson's hand just like went limp in my hand, and he like fell back. And I thought I gotta go now, and that was the only time I met Michael
1: Jackson. <laughs> it's not to laugh at, but that's, no, that's, it is now a story. I remember that. Were you? Uh, Becca?
0: Yes. Um, I, oh, for the record, no, but yes.
1: <laughs> I remember. Yo, that was in April of eighty. Eighty was it? Eighty, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. That mm. when that news hit. My aunt like lost it. Yeah, that was something else. Joking. Anyway, wait. Uh, so,
0: and speaking story. of Michael Jackson, then we bring up Greg Philagens, who is one of her besties. Yeah, uh, yeah. I go
3: way back with him. He we love like, Greg. Yeah, Greg is on, a favorite on the show. Yeah, no, I've heard the the podcast. So. Uh huh. Um, but the question you yeah, were going to, fix, going to no, you I, I know you asked him a question, I and I don't. He either didn't know the answer or didn't a- answer was whether Earth, Wind & Fire played on on their records. Oh. And Allie Willis knows the
1: answer. Yeah. Tell me. Uh,
3: Okay, I have to say, in my day, yes, they did. They played every instrument. There were people like Paulino, you know, DaCosta was coming in. Accessories. they, They played all their stuff. Later, it started changing up. A few years, just a few years later. Um, and I, I think Maurice was also getting conscious of um, hearing certain things and going, well, we want to sound like this. Right. Which to me then really deadened the... Uh, the sound or the feel yeah. of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's impossible. I mean, it's kind of like Dr. Drake. Like it's, I think it's impossible because by that point, I mean, after 1975, they were such a force on the road. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I'll give a big example. Like the Beach Boys. To the point where if, if as a unit, the Beach Boys were always touring on the road, mm-hmm. and kind of Brian was, was at, at home yeah. maintaining that. So I always felt that there were more whoever could deliver the greatest performance musically on their records after 1978. Could do it. I mean, I definitely feel it for, I mean, on the Rays album, uh, on on their 81 Rays album, there's...
3: Yeah, by that I, time it was shifting, but certainly before it was absolutely, yeah. at least when I was there, yeah. it was all them.
1: Yeah, so that's always been a question, but Maurice kind of talked about it in his book as well. Um, okay, so I always felt that you were the spiritual whisper. You have to tell me, about working with Narda Michael Walden. And is he always yes. like that 24 7? Yes. <laughs> really? Every time I talk to him, he just calms me down. Oh,
3: I was thinking the other way. Oh, he's hype? Absolutely. No. Hyper. Narda, not hype. Narda I adore Michael him. Walden.
1: I, yes. He's hyper? Uh, on. Bang, 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 bang. Every time he talks to me, it's like my science teacher from
3: third grade. It, he is i would say he's 50% that way and 50% the other way and there's no middle <laughs> no middle he is an unbelievably great guy um i love him i it worked with him recently um but we started when I, he used to open for Patty Label so when i started getting my patty stuff uh. he started you know hitting me up let's write together let's write together and I almost immediately got sick of songwriting as soon as I started
1: having hits.
3: It was just Why? It was because it was too much. Everyone and their mother. So especially, when something
1: would hit, then people would knock on your door. And yeah. Then the pressure to yeah. make my shit like September.
3: Yeah. And I think uh, because I was so associated with Earth, Wind, and Fire, people assumed I was just the lyricist. That drove me nuts. Right. And in a lot of Earth, Wind, and Fire, I was, but with no one else was I. And it never was as interesting for me just writing lyrics as, you know, versus writing music and lyrics. So by the time Narda got to me, which was after September was out, um, I, I was trying to weed out who, you know, um, I, I was writing, I was getting over 100 songs cut a year, which so I was a machine. I would write five six hundred songs a year. I mean, I was writing three four songs a day. Wow! So how do you not get numb from that process? I did. I I stopped enjoying it almost as soon as I had hits. And how do you so? Enjoy what's your creative
1: What's crazy. your creative process? Because the number for you to churn out that many a day, it's like how do you not get this brought?
3: It was mostly writing lyrics, and I just started hating it. It was exciting at first because you get on everyone's album but i didn't think uh musically most of the time it's like if if i had been co-writing the music bar 5 we would have been somewhere else you know right so um it eventually led to it led to really me being kind of miserable the more songs i got cut between 80 81 is when i really started feeling like i i can't keep doing this this is it's going to make me hate music really uh, yeah and then 83 uh, it happened with a um, Manhattan Transfer uh, song. They, they had me write lyrics. There was a uh, Spyro Gyro song called Shaker Song. Right. And so they had me and uh, David Lasley, who was a frequent collaborator of mine, incredible, um, put lyrics to it. It's like, what are we going to do with, yeah. with Shaker? You know, what what is that? And it took us forever. You know, we finally figured out, oh, he can't shake her. As opposed to Shaker. Uh, but what they wanted was a jazz song where every single phrase had a lyric to it with very little repeat. So it, it was a four page single spaced lyric. If that just you went linear? That went linear. Uh, you know, the, the four lines repeated where Shaker was, it would repeat. Otherwise, it constantly changed, took forever to write. Um, so they uh, I was really good friends with all of them and they called up 1981 this was I was already at the point of like I, I'm not interested in doing this anymore it's just it, it, it's too much because you write that many songs what is there to say um, and, and I'm writing mostly to music that I didn't care about but I was getting on these huge albums right. so um, <clears throat> uh, Tim Hauser was the you know yeah. his, his group he called up and he said, now we want to do Pick Up the Pieces, Average White Band. And so write a lyric to that, and we need it, like, on Monday. And it was my birthday that weekend. I'm a huge party thrower. That is my number one skills, parties. Way above music. (laughs) Way above music. So um, (laughs) I thought, oh, God, now I have to do what I did to Shaker Song, which was nightmarish, even though I loved the Shaker Song. But it it was a really hard song to write. So you think about average white band, you know. Uh, It's like, oh, my God, I got to do this all the way through. And I know there can be very few, you know, repeats. So it ruined my birthday weekend. I just, you know, sat there (laughs) writing around the clock and I handed it in and Tim said, Oh we just wanted the chorus. Oh. Uh, yeah. No. And that was at the point where I went, I'm out. I can't do this because I also what I was doing is I would write with a group or you know an artist and I'd write seven or eight songs and then maybe they would do one. If you were lucky they would do one. And I just felt like songwriters get so taken advantage of. It's not like you're getting paid you to you. write. And it's, you know, don't make me do eight songs if, you know, you already got nine songs on the record, so what am am I doing this for? And then uh, uh, pick up the pieces, that, like, put it over the top. So I spent the next two years being completely miserable but still getting a lot of songs cut, which is a lot of the reason why I don't know the Angela Bofield song or, you know, probably, you know, tons of them because there were so many in there. It's still uh, an incredible
1: burden and a half because it. Every these words are just pouring out of you. I know I'm presenting this romantic yeah. version of like oh, the gods are just pouring words out of you, but it's like, but words that you stop caring about
3: uh, between writing so much and not caring about some of the music, feeling that the music could have been so much better. So when something doesn't make it, where is it? Uh, In the garbage can. Uh, You didn't know somebody
0: else? No, no.
3: Yeah, oh, no. I mean, for every song I have out, there are 10 others sitting there. Nothing happens with them, especially if it's not music that you thought was that great. And you were writing with a specific artist. So, um, no, there were hundreds of songs just like, you know, Dead Fish,
1: you know, the, it was. It was so you you're literally, like, where is that pick up the pieces? I'm I'm the world's biggest average white band fan. Yeah. So just as a completist, where is that? Um,
3: I'm sure I've got it somewhere. Uh, oh, you know, dry. I have it, but you know, and uh, so so I decided right there and then that something has to change. Took me a couple years, uh, but out out of total frustration, I started to paint. And I was writing, working with one of the Go-Go's at the time. Okay. And uh, Jane Wheedland. Jane weedland's gta- yeah. Guitar. And she came in the very next day and bought my first painting. So I thought, oh, my God, I have this built-in, you know, music audience. I'm going to keep doing this. So I just started painting. Uh, it, it led to a lot of, like, uh, sculptural things and whatever. And that's what I mainly did in the 80s. I was still writing but the art was the main thing, and I wanted to combine the art and the music, so Neutron Dance became the very first uh, motorized piece that I did. So I had um, I wanted to get the kick drum on the record to trigger the movement. Couldn't figure that out though. So it was mainly my interpretations of what the songs were, and I would cut out, you know, people and buildings, and everything would be uh, moving. I did neutron dance that way. I then went back. I did boogie wonderland. I did what have I done to deserve this? Uh-huh. And the biggest fan of my motorized art was James Brown. Really? James. Yeah, that was. And I have video of every inch of him ever, like being in my house. Because um, you said you had a story. Because he was the reason that you started. Right. well he, james were, you know I, I always collected memorabilia and i loved black memorabilia specifically late 60s early 70s massive afros the fashions talk about what you have
1: you know. what's it what's what's in your
3: like, oh my god
1: it's unspeakable now but
3: uh yeah unspeak. you need a trip to willis wonderland that's yeah. what you next need next la we will yeah. make one um uh, but, you know, I, I wasn't uh, – originally, you know, I was – there were Sambos in there. There were Mammies. And James Brown mm. went around my house. Uh, he asked me for a, a grocery bag. Oh, yes, James. Talk. Gave him gave him a, like, a brown grocery bag. Yes. <laughs> and uh, now, but mostly my stuff was the massive Afros. But yeah. there were Jemimas in there and other right. things. And he would go and he would pick it up. And he'd hold it about four feet in the air and then he'd go – Bing, and he'd let his hand go, and you could hear it smashing Ooh. in the bag. So I have the bag too. I have all the smashed pieces. Shut up. So, um, that's like an art piece you could make from Yeah, that. no, I know. I know. So, uh, he was the one that really said, This stuff is not cool. And, but the rest of my stuff, he said, You have to keep collecting this because. Black people did not know these things were around. There wasn't enough money to distribute stuff. So if something was made in Detroit, it wasn't going to get past Cleveland. And very specifically, it was a couple games that I had. One called Slang Lang, 1969, made in Detroit. I think Irene Carter is the uh, company. Okay. Black Bingo. So instead of B-I-N-G-O, it's B-L-A-C-K. And what? <laughs> yeah, and instead of that middle free space, it's uh, we are free people. Wow. And then instead of the numbers, it's Chitlins, uh, wow. Funky Broadway, Cadillac, uh, Gold Tooth. I mean, amazing stuff. It is. Uh, absolutely- I wish Timothy, and
1: we're here right now from the Smithsonian. Yes. She
0: might have it. Actually, have you talked to the Smithsonian about some of your stuff? No, uh,
3: you know, you're like, you are
1: not... oh going. no, I'm re- I'm ready to talk. I yeah, I have to make an introduction yeah. to Timothy and uh, Burnside at, at the Smithsonian. Who?
3: Well, wait, this is an unbelievable conversation because in 2020, I was supposed to have um, a. Uh, pretty major exhibition of my collection and my work and how it worked together. And this morning before I came here, uh, I uh, got a thing that the CEO of the Charles Wright African-American Museum, which is the second largest African-American museum next to the Smithsonian now, Uh in Detroit, she resigned this morning. So there went the exhibition.
1: So yes, please introduce me.
3: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I,
1: I, yeah. As soon as we're done, have, yeah. you, I, have you been
3: have, there? The, have ma- you
1: been there in DC yeah. yet? No, and I've got a couple
3: things because I a, know the color Purple's there, Earth Wind and Fire's in there. Yeah, so I'm dying. And
0: they have a like Mammy section and a, a Sambo and explaining uh, about the. So you would really
3: appreciate. Yeah, it. oh, yeah. I would love it. But my stuff is all like one of my favorite things is it's uh, a do. It's called the Do It Yourself uh, Black Power Coloring Kit. And it's,
0: uh, I love you. And all
3: it is, is a, you know, you got a couple little paints and then you get a figure that starts out as a white man and you paint him black and he's got his fist raised. What year was this? Uh, nine, that was 68, I think 68. Um, I thought I was
1: a pack rat in a... And oh, a, no. A I culture oh, okay. We didn't
0: even... And then,
3: like, talk about the, the correlation between your house and, and Pee-wee's house. Well, that... People used to think that I did the set, which I didn't. We, at that time, were, like, inseparable. We were best friends. So we had very similar aesthetic. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but, uh, but I actually didn't have anything to do with that. I did, though write the title song that we did as a duet to Big Adventure. But Danny Elfman, who, you know, did all the music, music for that, said, ain't no one else doing the title song. But I do have that, the duet between me and Pee Wee. That's the circus one, right? The second movie. Uh, that No, that was Pee Wee's Big Top. Okay. I was a big Pee Wee fan. It was, yeah, Big Adventure was the, the first original. one on yeah, yeah, the bike. With, yeah. Wait,
1: you wrote lyrics to that theme? Yes, and great. No, 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 da, 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 no, no, da, no, 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 no. Claro.
3: No, that was Mark Mothersbaugh and okay. all that. <gasps> <sighs> <mumbles> that
1: because okay. that. <gasps> that's, uh, no, that's, that's my one- alarm music. It is. Yeah. It's awesome. Really? Yeah. No, the only thing that came out. That really was loaded, right, Steve? I just figured you would wake up to that, but apparently you just... I want you to do it, through, <laughs> it. Da,
3: da, da, Unbelievable No that's Mark Mothersbaugh And Cyndi
1: Lauper singing Oh okay So No you're talking about The theme to his television oh, show Oh that's what I'm talking about Okay I was yes. talking about The theme to his movie when that, he that that's Danny oh, Elfman okay, yeah, okay yeah yeah
3: But the the duet did come out On Warner Brothers They made 500 picture discs And that's all So um, anyway Greg Fillingain's playing on it too
0: I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
4: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanika on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same
5: exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
1: I have have a question since we're on your memorabilia stuff. um, What's your record collection like after all?
3: Um, You know, like I converted everything to digital because I couldn't stand schlepping everything around anymore. I still have my favorite, favorite, favorite albums, mostly Motown, but it's not... I don't have it out, though, but I have a lot of music memorabilia, Mm -hmm. so... Um, But James Brown was the one who um, said to me, you have to keep collecting this stuff. You know, you could have a museum with the stuff that you have uh, because people don't know this stuff is in existence. So I, you know, was the godfather saying collect. So
1: I just kept going. So you just collect any type of kitsch art or pop culture art, everything?
3: Uh, well, uh, it's very specifically, the periods I'm mo- I used to be most interested in the 50s. Now, way more interested 60s, 70s. Um, uh, kind of uh, soul stuff. Okay. Atomic sure. stuff, kitsch stuff. The kitsch stuff didn't happen until later. I hated uh, kitsch, but then I art directed. Why? I just didn't, it was too... I was into like more like fantastic design oh. and kitsch kind of was over. Not the just line. dogs
1: playing poker.
3: No, I wasn't <laughs> into that stuff. But then I art directed and production designed Julia Julie Brown. Yeah, Julie Brown. Yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Julie Brown Show, which was the very first clip- downtown Julie Brown. No, no, up-town. the white one. Oh, the white one.
1: Up- <laughs> no, there were two ones. There yeah. Okay. Julie, yeah. Okay. I used to watch that show. No, she was good. Yeah. And
3: it was, it was the very first MTV clip show yeah. where someone was commenting on videos. So we would make fun, you know, of all the, uh, the videos. The redhead, yes! Okay, I got you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. And, um, and, and so that set had to be really kitschy. And me and her, I remember we went to the Long Beach Swamp Meet and there was a painting of two clowns drinking a cup of coffee. And I, th- I thought there's something hideous about this, but I knew it was right for her set. And my deal, because there was no budget, we would shoot 10 shows in three days. And we did like, we, you know, we, like every three months, we would do another 10 shows. And um, I, uh, w- we bought that painting and I just went, uh, I could feel it that I just had crossed a line. <laughs> and then I went, Crazy because it became this whole new thing to collect, you know. So, like, I consider that Black Power statuette part of my kitsch collection because they could have made him tan, right? To start out with, they didn't need to make him like pure white, you know. I see. So, um, a lot of stuff like that. Like, I have the unbelievably great graphic on these uh pantyhose uh, called Touch a Soul, and you know, it's this uh. Almost nude woman, almost like she's praying, and she's in the middle of like this, you know, red, green, and black circle thing. But then the shade of the pantyhose is off black, which is not right, right, right. you know. Yeah, and and, or the Supremes, you know, the Supremes had white bread out. Oh, yes, supreme, yeah, yeah, supreme. I've got the bread wrappers. Oh, like they had bread out, like they had bread, white bread. Okay, yeah, and good. they got killed for it. I have Mary Wilson on, on uh, film talking about how they just, it, you know, it killed them because it, Pumpernickel, raw was it but it wasn't but, their choice they have made
0: they couldn't i mean no i artists. know
3: but literally supremes white bread i mean it's unbelievable <laughs> yeah, it was... <laughs> Yo,
0: were you always the visual art piece uh i want
3: to say that we see today as far as wardrobe or... uh, once i got on my once i started cutting my record in 1972 is when the clothing oh so you were just kind
1: peacocking of, back then
3: i was yeah before that i was like you know what would a college girl wear you know, like not expressive at all. And then someone took me to a thrift shop and my life changed. Wait, before yeah. we forget. I understand.
1: What was the print story?
3: Um, so, Well, we've kind of ruined the impact of the story because we know who it is now. But oh, um, there was this kid that always hung around. Uh, Earth, Wind & Fire had their own label when I Am came out right. called Ark. Uh-huh. And uh, there was this weird kid... Always hung around the office. Didn't talk to anyone, but he was there 100% Oh, Cavallo Ruffalo.
1: Yeah. yeah. okay.
3: And um, I, uh, um, I had heard all of the I Am album complete, but I never heard it sequenced. Uh-huh. So um, when I got the call, come up, Maurice's, you know, they're on the road, go in Maurice's office. It was a reel-to-reel and you can hear the album sequence. I knew this was going to be an incredibly emotional thing for me because I knew this album was going to change my life. Right. You know, I'm I'm still on food stamps at
1: this time. Okay,
3: so um, I go in, and the whole like couple days before, I'm like so excited, and this is I'm going to be in Maurice's office. I'm going to have this moment to myself. I'm going to cry. It's going to be unbelievable. So I get up there, and I'm closing the door, and uh, someone comes over and says, "Can they used to call him the kid, can the kid listen with you? And I thought, shit, that's this weird kid, and he never says (laughs) anything. And so here's the reel-to-reel. Here's the weird kid maybe four feet back from the reel-to-reel. I'm back like at Maurice's desk. So I'm maybe eight feet behind him and I couldn't even concentrate on the record. I just kept looking at the guy going, fuck you. You know, what are you doing to myself? Right. Like, what are you doing in here? This is my my moment. Right. And then four months later, I want to be your lover came out and I went, Oh my fucking God. It's, was there no
1: small talk or anything? Nothing. Not
3: a word. Did y'all ne- ever circle back to each other? Never. No, not a word. But, you know, there's my uh, Prince story. i was really good friends with uh, Wendy, though. Wendy and Lisa yeah, still. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But um, They've been on the they're show. friends of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um,
1: you know, we, there's so much that we missed. I actually wanted to know how fast, uh, this is going to be the most obscure uh music question I ask of the day. How fast did it take you to write shopping from A to Z? Wow. <laughs> you are them pulling them out. <laughs> oh, wait, you think you're just on the show because they told you to be on the <laughs> <laughs> like I, He
3: wanted to nerd. I out. know wow. your history. Yeah. Um, I just
1: didn't know it was you personally Well,
3: I didn't write it as fast as the fastest song I ever wrote was Neutron Dance. That was the fastest. Um, that was 58 minutes, 28 for lyrics and 32 or whatever it is. You ain't smoking no weed. How do you remember that? Uh, because I, um, did not want to write the song. That was real. That was the first time I was in, I had so many hits in a row and then I had nothing. And it was at a point where I was miserable writing and really feeling like I had ruined my career. Um and uh, there was, should I tell you the Neutron Dance story? Yeah, tell me. Okay. Um, that there was a uh, uh, a movie called Streets of Fire.
0: Yes, yeah. Diane Lane.
3: But all they told me about this movie was that it was a handsome guy, a cute girl, and a black doo band and they're out of town. Ta- they're only ones to escape a nuclear holocaust. <laughs> Side
1: note. That's all they told yes. me. I believe Streets of Fire was the first PG-13 uh, rated film. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Huh. this is where I can Dan Hartman. I can, I can dream, dream about.
3: about is this is where that you, came yeah. from. Well, okay. that, so this was the that was the spot. Yeah. that it was written for. Okay, and it was Joel Silver's first movie too.
1: Okay, as so, a director, right? Yeah, uh, okay. as
3: a producer. As okay, a producer, and um, anyway, so they said write this song. I didn't have any confidence that I could write good anymore. Uh my publisher put me with someone who had never written a song before but they signed him cuz his brother had the biggest record of the year the year before which was maniac.
1: Oh, Danny Simbello. Yes. Yes. So, uh, the great you know, Danny but,
3: but because he was Michael Simbello's little brother, brother. So and I only found out that he had never written before like 5 minutes before he was coming over and so when I
1: when Well you you're telling me that Danny Sembello's entry in the music—he's written a lot of shit that, that we know. That was his first song, was Neutron Dance. But you're saying to me that like it was nepotism that got him in the door? Absolutely. He would have
3: been the first to tell you that too. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because his
1: name just pops up everywhere. New yeah. Edition stuff. Yeah. It's, Michael McDonald. Like he He's one of my favorite business. collaborators
3: yeah. ever. So is Narda. But but uh, Danny really unbelievable. So it was it just a
1: nepotism move?
3: Yes, that's crazy. And he had been in Stevie Wonder's. Band. He was seventeen at the time. Yeah, and he had been in Stevie's band since he was fifteen. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the only thing I knew was that he could play. Okay. Which was great for me because I can't play. Um, so I put a timer on when he came over because I said I only have an hour, and and I thought, oh. and he came over and he had like he had like a little bag lunch and he, he had a hockey uniform on and he was sweating it was just like the worst thing that could have happened to me right um and uh and i knew we had to write for a doo-wop band so i just said to him play the tritest 50s bass line that you could think of and he immediately you know boom 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 and i can sing a melody to anything Start tapping those water bottles together. You'll have a song in 30 seconds. So um, uh, we, so the, I know the music was done in 28. And then uh, we started on the lyric. And I knew it had to have something to do with, uh, n- you know, it was a nuclear holocaust. So, you know, <laughs> something. There's got to be, like, burning in there or exploding, you know, something. And
2: <laughs> I'm so I, glad you're telling
3: right. this
1: story because I'm like, what does this have to do with Beverly Hills Cop? Like, right. why? Well, yeah. Now I get yeah. it. Now I get it. No, so, um, <laughs> we, though the
3: original title of Neutron Dance was Barbecue.
0: How <laughs> black
2: is.
3: <laughs> I'm just burning on the barbecue. That was original. So I I was, I, you know, this was a song we were writing. We weren't writing for a particular artist. So I, it was very autobiographical uh, because I just, I felt like, you know, my career is over, what's happening in my life. And I knew I had to make a change. If I don't get off my ass and do something, it's all over. So, and that's the, you know, that lyric, I don't want to. Stole my Chevrolet and and all that stuff. Well, there's something very exact about that line we wrote the first verse I don't want to take it anymore I'll just stay here lock behind the door just no time to stop and get away works hard to make it every day I look out of my window and there are two kids picking the lock on my 1962 pink Corvair so I race out of the house and I'm thinking I got to get this kid out of here this song is like a piece of shit so I'm running out of the house into my driveway to chase the kids away and I yell back the line someone stole my brand new Chevrolet which is how that <laughs> how that happened <laughs> yeah but they didn't steal it you caught them no i caught them okay and they were kids so they okay. ran away as soon as i got out there and then by the time i was back cuz i'm just racing it's like why am i putting time into this song my career's over who's this kid so then I had in the rent is due, I got no place to stay. And so that song was finished. He was out of the house in 58 minutes. Nice. Yeah. Yo. And uh, handed it in. They rejected it, you know, from the movie, which to me it was like this piece of shit song written in under an hour. So didn't surprise me. But my publisher really liked the song. Got it to the pointers. Pointers cut it, but it was they were at their height. They had already chosen five singles off this next album that was coming out. I was going to say, how'd
1: you get it past Richard Perry? Uh,
3: I I I had nothing to do with that. At that I know point. he's like,
1: yeah, that
3: was strictly blocker. Like, yeah, that was strictly my uh, my publisher did that. And um, anyway, pointers cut it, and then I get a, a package in the mail that had a cassette and a letter from Jerry Bruckheimer. He's doing his second movie. They, uh, you know, need a song that sounds like the song that's on the cassette, and it's Neutron Dance.
0: Did he know? You were from Detroit, and did he know? No.
3: Okay. No. But they certainly had to have known I was the writer of Neutron Dance, and they're sending me this thing right. to copy, which they, I knew they sent to every writer in L.A., because all my friends were calling me up, and everyone knew, oh, it's Eddie Murphy. That, you know, this is going to be hot. Yes, we're going to write a sound alike
1: to Neutron Dance. So, is that the process for most soundtracks, at least for back then? Back then, we a need lot a song of that times. sounds like this. Yeah, they'd so, put the temp music in. So, this explains the Ray Parker Jr. Ghostbusters yes, thing. Yes, uh, absolutely. Listen to the song because they and make sent this. him, I want a new
3: drug. Right. Yeah. I see. And um, anyway, so I got so sick of my friends telling me that they've ripped me off that I called Danny up and said, come over. And so we stripped a Neutron Dance demo down to the drums, used all the same sounds, wrote an exact parallel lyric, and handed that song in, rejected uh, for Beverly Hills Cop. And three weeks before the movie came out, um, I found out that Jerry Bruckheimer had gone into his garbage can looking for a cassette to tape over Put, played the first few seconds of this song that he pulled out of the garbage and it was Stir It Up. So Stir uh, It Up and Neutron... Oh, yes. 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 Listen, to oh. the, listen to the lyric of stir, stir, stir It Up yes, and listen to the lyric of Neutron Dance and they, they are the exact same song. Uh, I'm doing something I haven't done in a long yeah. time, ladies
1: and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a story. Yeah, it, it's yo yeah
3: so that's how that's how those two that's the craziest
1: story i've heard since the human nature discovery for quincy jones <laughs> what from steve picaro yeah like yeah the the cassette was on uh auto what do you call it when it goes to side b automatically yeah whatever it was on side a yeah not from steve but from the other guys in the group yeah and they were recording over his cassette yeah when it yeah. went to side b even suddenly yeah human nature they're like that's yeah. the song We
3: me and Steve wrote a song. Michael Jackson wanted a song like "Human Nature," and we wrote uh, a song. It was my first time working with him, Uh and uh, Steve was going to meet him in Las Vegas or something, and then Michael Jackson died. Oh oh, wow! Yeah, there is a uh, song on the new, the latest Toto album called The Little Things that Steve actually sings the lead on uh-huh. that was supposed to be the oh human nature sound alike that went to Michael Jackson. Wait,
0: I got to make a note. You said, so. what the name of that song again? The Little Things. Uh, the, uh, the Little things.
3: things. The Little
1: Things. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So... Uh, lots Child. of stories like that. Where, uh, where are we at right now? Uh, like, we,
0: we good. I mean, we passed. We good. <laughs> yeah. But it, we didn't even get to the color purple. And
1: Let's get to the color purple. The parties
0: purple. and the Jennifer Lewis besties.
3: And oh, the, yeah. You're uh, Jennifer besties. Lewis's best friend? Well, she's one of my best friends. And we need to show him, the, just <laughs> from last week, uh, her doing leading a uh, little sing-along well, her uh, book rap. chant thing in order to sell the book. At her house at with the house, cast of the party. color purple
0: with a full like choreography. Yeah, with Allie it's, in the back doing a choreography too.
3: Yeah, it's a minute, uh, a, a minute long. I will watch. But, this. Uh, very
0: typical a pump, of what pump.
3: happens. I, if J- Jennifer Lewis cannot come when I throw a party, I change the date. What? I change the date because she ends up hosting the parties with me all I the time. Jennifer
1: is, uh, she is, re- she's unknowingly responsible for the success I'm having with my current book right now. Wow. Uh, I heard, usually right before, I, I didn't want to do an audio book. This is like my fourth book, and I'd like try to uh, stave off the, the the publisher for making me do an audio yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. So once I gave in, then I was like, all right, let me do some research because what I, what I don't want to bore people with my voice. Yeah. And someone recommended to me, listen to how yeah, she yeah, tells yeah, a story yeah. on her audio book. yeah. And I I listened to her. You got to listen to. I got to. Yeah, now I want to. Get the audio book of Jennifer Lewis's. Mm. The mother of black
3: uh, Hollywood. Mother of black Hollywood. Yeah.
1: She's the most compelling storyteller. Like she uses her voice inflections. So that's the reason why I decided like, yo, well, I don't have the gift of like, and then I told Oh, he's going to die Z. when he
3: sees this. Yeah, like, yeah.
1: I, I didn't have that. So I figured, like, what's my version of Jennifer Lewis? Oh, I'll, I'll do skits. So, like, I put...
0: Oh, you reenacted the actual... Well, I have,
1: like, actors and stuff, like, people, like, rereading. And Steve is... Who are you, Steve? Uh, I'm Paul McCartney, Yeah, bro. Steve is Paul McCartney. Oh. So, like, I, I owe that to Jennifer Lewis. <laughs> Look at
0: Steve's face. He's so proud. <laughs> but,
3: you know, Jennifer Lewis has a similar type story of being inspired by someone in order to get a movie part that she got when she went up for, what's the Disney movie that she's in? The, Sister? No. No, the, and the character is Mama o- Oda. Uh, it's one of the Disney movies, like, like a six, animated seven one? years. Yes. Okay. Six, seven years ago. Um, I'm looking it up. She's been in a lot of shit. Yeah, and uh, she didn't know what voice to use for the character, and she owns a lot of my art that I've done, and uh beautiful by the way Don't. thank you mm-hmm. in 1999 i took on an alter ego named bubbles the artist I who i manage <laughs> and jennifer started buying up bubbles stuff rupaul and lily tomlin own the most they they battle each other
0: are you saying have they ever been in the room all these people been in the room absolutely RuPaul, lily tomlin and jennifer all together oh my god i Altogether.
3: could die was I could it die. cars three was, was no, it, it wasn't cars. It was like the princess. And oh, the princess f- and the frog. Yeah, princess and the oh, Frog. oh, the only black that's princess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, that's it. So um, anyway, so one of the paintings of mine that she owns by Bubbles, the artist who I manage, <laughs> but is actually me. Okay, um, is a thing of Mom's Mabley. So Jennifer goes to the audition and she has no idea what to do. What voice to do, and she said she flashed on the painting of Moms, and so if you listen to her character in that movie, it is Moms Mabel.
0: Yeah, she goes, Dad. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. used to listen to tapes of Moms Mabel oh. with my
3: dad driving to school. Like, incredible, oh, yes, incredible.
0: And you painted her.
3: Yeah, mm. I loved Moms Mabel. Mm-hmm. Well, Bubbles painted her. I mean, Bubbles. I'm sorry, I just manage her. Right, right, right.
1: Okay, it it would it would actually. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, obviously. Wow. Well, okay, I'm I'm certain that you're going to say, yeah, I wrote it in five minutes. Didn't mean anything to me, and just <laughs> and it just became <laughs> all right. Worse one yet, of the I biggest theme songs. It. When did when did you actually write uh, "Remembrance"? Uh, I'll be there for you. Rembrandt. Uh, Rembrandt. Yeah. I'm sorry.
3: Um, that was written in 1994. I did not really didn't want to be a songwriter anymore because I had gotten onto the internet in nineteen ninety one, came up with a concept for a social, social right yeah. Yeah, social network in nineteen ninety two. My CEO uh, became Mark Cuban. And uh,
1: we no one understood So what explain the concept, because back then it was the super information highway. Like. Yeah.
3: Um, I wanted to take anything that could be done in an online environment, which was not a lot, and there was maybe one of each of these things, mm-hmm. but you could sell things, you could play games, you could do email. Um, you, you know, it was very limited stuff. I wanted to take everything, combine it together in one place, which wasn't done then. If you shopped for the One car that maybe was online, you'd have to take 10 minutes, log off, then go to where you would you know, play a game. You were always in this black hole Uh of cyberspace. So I wanted to combine everything. I'm the first one ever that said the Internet is a social place, that this is about people connecting to each other. So there could be collaborations and there could be friendships and there could be all this kind of stuff. And at the same time, you could sell them cars and they could collaborate with each other and they could get information. They could do anything. And we're going to create this fictional community inhabited by these fictional characters who are going to be the guides into cyberspace for people who in 1992 did not understand what cyberspace was. And I prototyped it throughout the 90s. But we were just too early. You were No way one too early. knew what we, we were talking about. Does Mark about.
1: Zuckerberg know? Uh, most been. likely, yeah. So for like no, when you discovered Fringster and, and well, that, all the early I had templates. a ton
3: of resentment that took yeah. me forever to get over. Because all those, they ignored the issues that we couldn't solve and therefore didn't do it. What happens to copyrights? Right. What about privacy? Mm. And we just didn't know the the answer to it you know still damn don't but um but so i I was interested in that, and I still had a publishing deal to you know a quota to fulfill, and quotas had never been i'd never had one before, but it never would have been a problem in the old days, but now I'm interested in something that's nonlinear that's totally interactive, and I'm not interested in a three-minute song that goes from here to here, and the artist is the only one that has a say in it. I'm interested in what is music now that anyone from anywhere can impact can it- what it is you're creating. So every time I thought I'd written enough songs, the publisher would say, no, you know, you haven't. Finally got down to I owed a seventh of a song, and they said there's this TV show coming out, no one thinks it's going to be a hit. Write this, you're out of your deal. So, um, <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Shit! So the music uh, Michael Skloff had written already. He was married to one of the producers. Right. And um, gave me the song. I thought, this is the whitest thing I've ever heard in my life. It was. It's going to ruin my career. But everyone said, don't worry, because who's going to hear this? No one's ever going to hear
1: this. Yeah, no one's going to hear And...
3: Um, <laughs> so I uh, handed it in and it blew up instantly. And I, uh, so it was a 45 second thing that a disc jockey in Nashville made a cassette of and played it back to back for 45 minutes. Rembrandt's got it because they were the only uh, band uh, signed to Warner Brothers who were in L.A. at that time that weren't on tour. So, so no so one as- just find somebody to. Do it. Yeah, no one associated with this song really wanted anything to do with it, and um, uh, it became the biggest airplay record in 1994. It was unbelievable. So for me, that was the official end of my publishing deal. So it was perceived that I'm going out on a high note, when in fact I was like barely crawling. Really? you know yeah because I wanted to do this cyberspace thing and no one knew what I was talking about so um
1: so that was just a that uh, was a let gift. We just write this song yeah. yeah whatever
3: it was a gift total gift
1: okay so in the ending can you confirm or uh, not confirm for me <coughs> that one song can change your life because usually in movies well, yeah. movies and TV gives you this impression like that one hit single, you could just live off that. Oh, that's not true. Yeah, that's, yeah,
3: that's not true at all. So yeah.
1: it's like if if you only wrote September.
3: Well, if I had to
1: only and write. And live a modest life.
3: Yeah, if I, yes. If I had only written September. I do live a modest life because I'm a self-financed artist. So any of these other ideas I get, it's that song and a few others that are carrying the whole thing, you know, along. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you wrote it by yourself, if you produced it, if you sang it, you know, may and it was a gigantic hit that remained a classic, you could probably live a, a comfortable life. But those things happening at the same time are so rare uh, that, yeah. Michael
1: Jackson great film games now, you know, now i know that story. now it makes sense <laughs> yeah
3: no i know that's so you gotta own you gotta write it you gotta just own you gotta do everything and i was never in that position you know you're I mean, always a collaborator
1: yeah. and one fourth of a yeah of
3: a- and and you know the publishing like if you write for tv that that publishing's gone you know right. uh, yeah so and in earth wind and fire those were my first songs. so i got less of a writer's share than I should have. Right. And my publishing was owned by A&M. So, you know. After everyone gets their cut.
1: Oh, yeah, lunch money. I see. Yeah. So, mm, okay. Yeah. I I see. Uh, Okay. Uh, Gun to your head. The three songs that you're the proudest stuff. I'm really salty there's so we didn't talk about all American girls we didn't talk about well
2: she's
0: gonna invite us to her house so maybe we yeah. can do a show live oh, in North yeah. Hollywood we can invite Jennifer Lewis Lily, Lily Tomlin yes oh my god Yeah. I'm getting emotional I said Lily are you Tomlin. leaving
1: us like, no. to, to go to go live in her house I now? would
0: like to do that whenever <laughs> she, she invites me she lives really close yes, to me. yes. so yeah. Uh, I'll meet y'all there you gotta make it happen okay
1: yeah. we'll see you when you're out there so.
0: no but we're gonna do it this year
1: we're really yeah, gonna I'm ready year. Okay. I'm ready <laughs> Well, um, I, I thank you. And, thank uh, you. This is, wow. I, I could forever.
3: Well, just, I'm so impressed with what you know. I always knew that you knew a lot of stuff, but you were digging them out from the
1: bottom. Greg didn't warn you. <laughs> I'm really, well, listen, Boss Bill and Fontigolo no. and Unpaid Bill, you missed a <laughs> oh, doozy missed today. Uh, like, I feel like I'm the least knowledgeable of the, the, the six of us on the show. So Wow.
0: Bullshit. He don't feel like
1: that. <laughs> no, I mean, if Bill and Fonte were here, I barely get a word in. Well,
0: yeah, Fonte would take. Yeah, he would have took
1: over. I mean, they'd be freaking out over, you know, I. Sh- oh God, you wrote, I should have loved you. Oh yeah. Jesus Christ, that should have been a contender. Yeah, I mean, know, it, was, it, was, it was. You like, know who the bass player was? I Randy. Guess? Yes. Okay. And Randy was seventeen years old. Yeah. Randy Jackson.
3: Oh, we're yeah. gonna have him on the show coming up too. See. Yeah, it was
1: seventeen years yeah. old when uh, he first. Wow. Uh, played that and he sounds so much like Bernard Edwards.
3: Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was conscious too. Oh. I think we were talking about that.
1: She, yeah, yeah
3: it, it felt like a she group.
1: Yeah. All right. Anyway, I thank you very thank much for coming you. on. Ladies and gentlemen, Ali Willis, of <laughs> Legendary period. status right here. Songwriter Hall of Fame 2018. He's <laughs> new best, best friend. Yes. Going and I'm Laya, not going to
2: make we, it into the Hall of Fame.
1: We, we've lost uh, Laia to uh, Ali's yes. uh, world so it was nice knowing you. Uh, nice knowing Laya. you, too. Bye, Bye, Bye <laughs> Hello. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is uh, Questlove and love Supreme. We'll see hurt. you on the next go-round. I'll see you. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.